This is Mark writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 32. And these are the words that he pens. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Four thoughts on your outline this morning would encourage you to take notes, as I often say, but it bears repeating. I think you'll listen better if you do. Number one is this, a cross carried. A cross carried. Look back at your Bible there, find verse 21 again. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. We see a cross carried. Friends, customarily a condemned man carried his own cross, or at least the cross beam, the, the horizontal part of his cross, through the city streets of Jerusalem and out to the place of the crucifixion. And Jesus was no exception. This piece of timber weighed 100 plus pounds. It was heavy if you had not just been scourged. Can you imagine its weight? having just been beaten within an inch of your life. With a lacerated back and a, being physically drained from the repeated blows of a scourging, the beam lightly, likely felt crushing. John tells us, as a matter of fact, you can just jot this down in the margin if you're taking notes, John chapter 19, verse 17, John mentions to us that Jesus started to carry his cross, at least the cross beam member of it, but that he was too weak and that his strength gave out near the city gate. If that just sheds a little bit of light, uh, perhaps again back on our study from last week, uh, speaking about the scourging, the beating, the flogging of the sinless Son of Man. He was beaten such that he could not even get his own death instrument all the way to Calvary's Hill. His strength gave out somewhere near the city gate. But Jesus' executioners would rather have him alive on the cross than dead on the way. And so Mark tells us that the soldiers compelled or they drafted a passerby. His name is given to us there in your Bible. It's Simon of Cyrene. Uh, Simon was compelled. He was drafted with carrying Jesus' cross. We don't know a whole lot about Simon. 
Uh, Two of his sons are mentioned in the text for us, Alexander and Rufus. Paul goes back and mentions those two characters later on in a couple of his letters to the surrounding churches. It was very likely that those two sons of of Simon were either believers or came uh, to know Christ savingly at some point in their lives because Paul commends them to a couple of churches. It's very likely as well that Simon of Cyrene was either converted at this point or became a Christian, a follower of Christ uh, at some point in his life. But in any event, the soldiers seeing him walking into the city, walking into Jerusalem, compelled or drafted him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon had likely come to Jerusalem just like the, the hundreds of thousands of other Passover pilgrims to celebrate the Passover. And it was likely that the city was so packed, was so crammed full of people that Simon could not stay in the evening times. He could not retire or sleep in Jerusalem. Therefore, he found an alternate place outside the city to sleep. And again, this morning, he's coming into the center city of Jerusalem. The word translated compelled uh, there probably in your Bible is the Greek word anagereu. It means to impress or to carry a burden, to carry a burden. And so we see the soldiers compelled uh, Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross. Well, he was impressed or he was was compelled to carry a burden. Uh, Roman officials had the privilege of impressing service uh, on others. You might uh, be able to let your mind track back to earlier passages in the Gospels where Jesus told his followers, if you're asked to walk a mile, walk more than a mile. If you're asked to carry this, ask if you can carry more. Well, that's the exact same thing that's taking place here. It's that impressing into service. It's the carrying of a burden that Roman officials had the privilege of impressing upon others. In this case, the Roman soldiers drafted Simon and they forced him to carry the beam, Jesus' cross, the rest of the way. And the Gospels don't tell us this, but perhaps, perhaps this is a picture of what discipleship really looks like, friends. You know, discipleship, it's, a, it's become a buzzword in the Christian community. Uh, discipleship this, discipleship that, uh, uh, you know, books and articles and conferences, and that's all great. Uh, but discipleship, and, and I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater here, but discipleship has, has likely lost a whole lot of its meaning from what it meant in Jesus' day. I mean, Jesus said things to his disciples like the, the birds of the air have nests and the foxes of the ground have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Interpretation, do you really want to follow me? Do you really understand what you're signing up for? I mean, let the, be- the, 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 the dead go bury their own dead. Do not put your hand to the plow and then turn back. The stakes were high. But the stakes for modern day discipleship are just sign up for Jesus. And wear the t-shirt. Perhaps, friends, this is a picture that we see in Simon of Cyrene of what discipleship really looks like. If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Follow me. The soldiers took Jesus to the place outside 
the city, uh, but somewhat close to the city wall. John tells us that in John chapter 19. This place was called or referred to as Golgotha. Golgotha is a Greek transliteration of an Aramaic word. So it's not even a Greek word, it's an Aramaic word. Golgotha is the Greek transliteration, but it, it means the place of the skull. We get the word Calvary. Uh, we were having this conversation in our home some, uh, it's probably been a couple of months ago. What's the difference between Golgotha and Calvary? Well, uh, Calvary is from the Latin Vulgate rendering Calvaria, uh, which means skull. Calva means skull. And so Golgotha, or Calvary's Hill, it was a, a rounded, rocky knoll which vaguely resembled the shape of a human skull. We do not know where its exact location is. Perhaps the Lord does not want us to know where its exact location is, but we do know that it was outside of the city wall or outside of the city gate of Jerusalem. Luke tells us that, or John tells us that rather, and the writer of Hebrews tells us that. And so the first thing that we see in our text this morning is we see a cross carried. A cross carried. The second thing, write this down that we see in the text, is a pain not minimized. A pain not minimized. Look back there at your Bible. Look specifically at verses 22 and 23. And they, that's the soldiers, brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Just talked about that. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. He did not take it. And so we see here a pain not minimized. According to rabbinic tradition, certain Jerusalem women would oftentimes be available and they would provide a sedative-laced drink for those who were about to be crucified as a means of decreasing their pain, as a, as a means of desensitizing what was about to take place. And on arrival to Golgotha, they presumably, uh, it's the Roman soldiers here I think that we're speaking about, the Roman soldiers offered Jesus such a drink. Uh, perhaps the Roman soldiers uh, got the drink from these ladies, and then the Roman soldiers offer the drink to Jesus. This drink, which is wine mixed with myrrh. Myrrh is a plant's sap that has an anesthetic property to it. But after Jesus tasted this drink, which Matthew tells us that he tasted the drink, Jesus refused it. He refused to drink the drink, choosing rather to face suffering and death in full control of his human faculties. Jesus refused any desensitizing of what was getting ready to take place or what had already taken place at his scourging. He wanted to be in full control of all of his faculties. The imperfect tense of the verb offered here, they, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. That, that imperfect tense of the verb suggests that this was a repeated action. In other words, the soldiers likely repeatedly offered Jesus this wine mixed with anesthetic. But Jesus rejected it. Jesus' suffering is deliberate and it's purposeful. He must sense the forsaking by the Father in order to relieve us of that agony. You catch that? Jesus, Jesus must, for, for, he must sense the full forsaking 
by his Father, including the horrendous pain of the cross in order to relieve us of that agony. Friends, let me make this a little bit personal for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. For you, Jesus refused to be drugged. He refused to be drugged. Jesus deliberately said, I will take this man's pain. I will take that woman's pain. I will take this man's punishment. I will take that woman's punishment. I will face it in the fullness of my feelings, in the fullness of my awareness, in the fullness of my consciousness. I will take nothing that will take the edge off what I experience in their place. Christ, when he, by the mission of God that had been assigned to him, determined to drink to the dregs the cup of God's wrath, he determined to drink it in full awareness of everything that entailed. He refused that his pain would be minimized. Brothers and sisters, you should never forget that. You should never forget that. We see a cross carried. We see a pain not minimized. Write this down. We see a king crucified. We see a king crucified. Look at verses 24 and 25. They crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. I don't know if you have noticed before as you have read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but as you read the gospel accounts, you see that this central event, that being the crucifixion of the sinless Son of God, is narrated with striking and stark simplicity. I mean, look at the economy of words here in verse 24. And they crucified him and divided his garments. That's it. That's all you get. Striking simplicity and economy of words. Mark simply writes, and they crucified him. We know that Mark is writing to a Roman audience here, and Roman readers needed no elaboration uh, on what this crucifixion looked like, and so Mark offers none. Mark offers none. I'll offer just a little bit here this morning to help maybe give us a visual reality in our hearts and minds of what took place there. But just as I said last week, and I'll, I'll say it again, I mean, we, no words can be put together one after another, strung together in a way that, that adequately describes the horror of the cross. You just can't do it. And so Mark just writes, and they crucified him. 
Well, Simon, who was ordered, drafted, compelled uh, to pick up Jesus' crossbeam, that, that horizontal part of the cross there, as Simon, uh, along with the soldiers, along with Jesus, have made their way to the top of Golgotha, Simon is probably now ordered to place the crossbeam on the ground, and Jesus is likely quickly and forcefully thrown backwards and his shoulders pinned against the wood. This all took place incredibly quick. The Roman soldier probably took a hold of Jesus' hand and felt for the depression in front of his wrist. You might find your own there. That depression between the back of your hand and the beginning of your wrist, the Roman soldier would find it there. And when he found it, he would drive a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and he repeats the action, finds the depression, stretches the arm out, and nails the second hand to the cross. The left foot was then depressed backwards against the right foot and both feet, so not feet like this, but feet like this, one on another, one nail, one spike driven through the ankle. This completed the crucifixion, but it did not complete the agony of the crucifixion. Jesus was left there until he died. Uh, Commentators debate on whether or not uh, the cross that Jesus first, Simon secondly, carried to uh, Golgotha's hill was a complete cross or whether it was just the cross beam portion. Uh, Some historians say that it was the full cross and that Jesus was nailed to the full cross and then that full cross was erected and set into a post. Uh, And some say that Jesus was nailed to that cross beam and he was lifted up to the vertical beam which stood there and was affixed. In either way, uh, it was a horrific, horrific sight. Jesus was left there until he died. Death oftentimes took days, if not close to a week, for a crucified individual. Probably had a lot to do with how, how bad the scourging was prior to the crucifixion. Just what a person physically had left in them before they expired. During this time... Jesus' naked body was exposed to the sun. Of course, they removed all of his outer clothings, right? Uh, Pieces of clothing. Uh, Just crucified with something uh, around his his loin, just around his waist. And so he was exposed to the searing heat of the sun. Every pore in his skin probably became a flowing fountain as the sunbeams like leeches sucked out the fluid from his body. Blood dripped from all of his wounds. All this brought on high fever. His mouth became dry. His throat would have become raspy. We'll see him cry out from the cross next week. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His tongue would have become swollen. I mean, even to utter those words would have been incredibly difficult. Every nerve in his body telegraphed pain to his brain. As his blood pressure dropped, the restricted blood flow resulted in excruciating aches and pains throughout his body. As his body slumped under its own weight, the nails would continue to tear at the flesh of his hands. 
As his body continued to cramp in relentless throbbing pain, it became increasingly difficult for Jesus to push himself upward. As a result, Jesus had to fight, as did anyone who was crucified, to raise himself enough in order to get just a small gasp of air. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, uh, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he struggles up on that cross to breathe and then slumps back down. Up on that cross to breathe and then slumps back down. And then another agony begins. A deep crushing pain in the chest as his pericardium, as that area in his chest there begins to fill with fluid and compress his heart. It's almost over now. Jesus' compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood through his tissues and his tortured lungs are making frantic last uh, gasps for air. Jesus can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. And it was in this way, friends, that the sinless Son of Man hung and died. We get that next week in its conclusion. But here's, here's, the, here's the picture. Here's, and, and again, this is, words aren't adequate to describe the horror of what took place on Calvary's I mean, th- this is just a, a physician's attempt to try to describe what happens to the human body under such circumstances. And then we see a casting of lots for his clothes. So with great simplicity of words, great economy of words, they crucified him. And then they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take And it was the third hour when they crucified him. You see, Romans crucified their victims naked, uh, or at least uh, without anything but something covering the loins there. A victim's personal belongings became the property of the execution squad. And in Jesus' case, from John chapter 19, we know this was a four-man squad here, four soldiers. And so they cast lots. They probably rolled dice uh, and one took his, uh, his inner garment, one took his outer garment, one took a belt, a sandal, perhaps a head covering. And uh, they, they basically gambled there at the foot of the cross to see who, who gets what. All the time unwittingly fulfilling Psalm twenty two eighteen, The psalmist writes, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Friends, every single Old Testament prophecy concerning the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was personally fulfilled in Jesus. Every single Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, including those seemingly small pieces of information, details, they divided my garments among them and they cast lots for my clothing. A king crucified. Friends, there are two aspects of the cross that we need to keep front and central this morning. And those two aspects are this. At Calvary, something was happening to God by man. 
at Calvary, something was happening to God by man. Now, uh, that statement in all reality needs a whole lot of qualification so that it doesn't cross over the line into heresy. But something at Calvary was happening to God by man. But also something was happening to man and for man by God. And friends, that is the heart of the gospel. That is the heart of the good news. God made him, speaking about Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Yes, at the cross, the sinless Son of Man is being crucified at the hands of lawless men. Right? Luke tells us that in Acts. You crucified him. At the hands of lawless men, he was crucified. But there at the cross, something was also happening to man and by, uh, or to man by God. Jesus, Jesus was paying sin's ransom. Jesus was paying sin's penalty. Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Jesus came to disarm all the rulers and he came to do so by triumphing over them at the cross. The cross. Friends, I I hope you do not have a desensitized American cultural view of the cross. The cross was horrific, but Jesus went there willingly and voluntarily for all who believe. For all who believe. Do you believe? And is your belief substantiated by repentance? Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from your sin and put your hope in Jesus Christ alone. Lastly, this morning, we see a servant marginalized. We saw a cross carried, a pain not minimized, a king crucified, and then lastly, a servant marginalized. Find verse 26 there in your Bible through verse 32. We'll talk about these verses individually here. But we need to be reminded on the onset that Satan has determined from the beginning to do everything within his limited Uh, scope of power to entice Jesus to sidestep the cross, right? That started at the beginning, at the onset of Jesus's public ministry as, as he's tempted out in the wilderness by Satan. Satan is cunning and he's crafty. And Satan's temptation of Jesus there in Matthew chapter four, specifically, as he's tempted out in the wilderness, is he's tempted to sidestep the cross, You can have the crown without the cross. Bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Sidestep the cross. That has been, is, and always will be Jesus or Satan's number one temptation. Is to get you to get your eyes off the cross. And if Satan's energies were focused at getting the sinless son of man to take his eyes off the cross, friends, you bet your bottom dollar that he's doing the same to you. 
if it can just get you distracted, even in little Christian pursuits. But you take your eyes off the cross, you miss everything. You miss everything. And so here we see in the final hours of his life, Jesus is tempted as onlookers taunt him to come down from the cross. Sounds a whole lot like the evil one speaking, right? Come down from the cross. And so we see Jesus marginalized or mocked, if you want another M word there, in verses 26 through 32. First, we see Jesus mocked by the inscription that is carried through uh, the city of Jerusalem, as, he's, as the progression uh, is making its way toward the cross, and then that sign or that inscription is hung above Jesus' head. Look at verses 26 through 28 there in your Bible. We see the inscription that mocks Jesus. Mark writes in the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. You see, it was Roman custom to write the name of the condemned and a description of his crime on a board and to attach it to the cross. All four Gospels record the words of Jesus' notice, uh, but with minor variations, uh, probably because that notice or that inscription was written in three different languages uh, as well. Mark records uh, only the official charge against Jesus, and that charge is the King of the Jews. As Jesus is paraded through the city on the way to Golgotha, on the way to Calvary, he does so with an inscription reading the charge, King of the Jews. And then that charge was affixed to the top of his cross. Pilate's wording was probably intended as an insult to Jewish aspirations for independence. You want a king? There goes your king. Some manuscripts actually insert verse 28 here. Uh, you might notice as you look down at your Bible, you likely don't have a verse 28. Uh, you, you likely jump from uh, 27 to 29. But some manuscripts actually insert a verse 28 here. Uh, and verse 28 is probably footnoted. You'll probably see a little footnote or a little subscript there that brings you down to the bottom of your Bible page. Verse 28 would read this, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, He was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with the transgressors. This harks back to Isaiah 53, 12, right? Jesus would be numbered among the transgressors. Jesus is mocked by the inscription uh, that is carried before him. Secondly, Jesus is mocked by the crowds. Now look at verses 29 and 30 there in your Bible. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. That is satanic. Come down from the cross. Again, Jesus was subjected to verbal abuse here. Passerby has hurled insults at him. Uh, the, the original language there, the Koine Greek uh, reads, uh, literally, they kept slandering him. Shaking their heads, that refers to a familiar uh, gesture of derision. Uh, we, we see that all throughout the Old Testament, people would shake their heads. I mean, basically, it's a, it's a, it's a visible symbol of disgust, that you would shake your head or you would wag your head and you probably wagged your fist at well, and we see that here by the crowds. Those passing by wagged their heads saying, ah, you who would destroy the temple in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. 
They taunted him for his alleged claim regarding the temple. The taunt was, Jesus, if, if you would rebuild the temple in three days, which is, a, which is a great feat, which is large in nature, then surely you could save, rescue, or deliver yourself from death by coming down from the cross, which seems to be a much lesser feat. I mean, if you can do one thing which is huge, if you can rebuild the temple in three days, then, then surely you could do something much lesser, like get yourself down from that cross. Jesus is taunted by those who pass by. And not only is he taunted by the inscription, not only is he taunted by the passerbys, but Jesus is taunted by, he's mocked by the religious leaders. Look there at verse 31 and 32. So also, on top of all this, the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Similar to the passerby, similar to the crowd, we see the Jewish leaders mocking Jesus. Their long-standing desire to kill him had come to fruition at past, or at last. Remember, in the past, uh, back as early as chapter six and seven and eight, we see the religious leaders plotting how they would take Jesus down, coming together in little secret meetings where they where they plotted to take him out. And now their long-standing desire to kill him, at least in their own eyes, is successful at last. Their words, he saved others, that refers to his healing miracles, which every single one of the religious leaders and the scribes could not deny. They had seen that. They had witnessed it with their own eyes. They had seen Jesus perform many miracles, heal and save. They could not deny that. But they ridiculed him because he seemed in this moment powerless to save himself, and the interesting thing is the exact same word here is used. There's a play on words. It's the Greek word sozo. Okay? Jesus, he sozoed others, but he can't sozo himself. He saved others, but he can't even save himself. What kind of Messiah is this? What kind of king is this? I mean, just like the, the soldiers mocked him in Pilate's praetorium, the same thing is taking place here. They're mocking Jesus as nothing more than a clown king. That's it. That's it. But friends, there's incredible irony in verses 31 and 32. The irony is that the religious leaders are correct when they say, he saved others, he cannot save himself. That's a correct statement. That's a true statement there. Indeed, Jesus cannot save himself if he is going to save others. He can't. If Jesus is to save others, he must die. He must die. That goes all the way back to the beginning in the garden. If you eat of the fruit, then you will surely die. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? The answer is no. God never speaks and then not acts. God never, never promises without fulfilling. 
So there's great irony in the religious leaders' words here. They're correct when they say he saved others, but he cannot save himself. The reason is, is that he cannot save himself if he is to save others. It's substitution, friends. The innocent for the guilty. Jesus must die. He must die. There's no alternative. Having said that, we cannot dismiss the fact that the temptation here from a human perspective, remember, Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. He's the anthropos. Man, God. And so from a human perspective, the temptation must be palatable. The religious leaders offered to believe if Jesus would just come down, just like Satan offered the kingdom if Jesus would just bow down. And the temptation, the temptation here in Jesus' humanity must have been great. In both cases, the temptation is to sidestep the cross. Whether it's the temptation in Matthew chapter 4, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, just bow down. Or the temptation that we see here in verses 31 and 32, you can have the allegiance of all the people if you'll just come down. The temptation is the same. And that temptation is to sidestep the cross Friends, Satan's crafty temptation is that Jesus can have the people's allegiance. He can, he can have their applaud. He, he can have them if he'll just forsake the Father's way of getting it. They also mocked Jesus' messianic claims. Replacing Pilate's words. Pilate's words were king of the Jews. King of the Jews. Look back at verses 31 and 32 here. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. Can he not save himself also? Let the Christ, the king of what? The king of Israel. A little modification there, if you notice that. Pilate's words were king of the Jews. The religious leader's words are king of Israel. They're challenging Jesus to prove his messianic claim by a miraculous descent from the cross so that they could see the compelling evidence and believe that he is indeed God's Messiah. But the issue, however, was not a lack of evidence. The issue here is a lack of belief. And friends, let me just pause right there and say the same issue stands before every single person today. The issue is not lack of evidence that Jesus Christ is the sinless Son of God, that he is the Messiah come to save his people from their sins. The problem, the problem is a lack of belief. Because Jesus is going to give a far greater sign than coming down from the cross, and that sign is the sign of his resurrection. And we know even at that point, the religious leaders refuse to believe. Hard heart. It's a hard heart. That's why earlier in his ministry, Jesus gave uh, the answer that he did to the Pharisees all the way back in, uh, in Mark chapter 8 when he said, you, you seek for a sign, I'm not giving you or your generation a sign. Faith would see a sign in everything that Jesus did. Unbelief will never be convinced by a sign. Do you have this kind of faith? To see the sinless Son of Man as the Messiah, the one come to save his people from their sin. Is the Bible all you need? That's why we're so 
steadfast on the fact that God's word is inspired, it's infallible, it's inerrant. It's authoritative. It's all we need. It's all we need. If you won't read your Bible and believe in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, you won't believe if any other sign is given to you. God's word is enough. God's word is enough. And then lastly, we see Jesus mocked or marginalized by criminals. We saw it by the inscription. Uh, we saw it by the, by the crowd, the passerbys. We see it by the religious leaders. And here we see it by the criminals that were crucified next to him. Look at verse 32, just the very end of the sentence there. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Talk about standing alone. Standing alone. But Jesus had come for this very purpose. It was for this very purpose that Jesus came from heaven to earth, robed himself in our flesh, John chapter 1, that he lived among us and that he died. Jesus was born to bleed. Jesus was born to die. The two men crucified with Jesus also join in this reviling action here. But we know that one of them soon stopped and asked Jesus to remember him in his kingdom. Uh, Luke 23. Remember me. Remember me when your kingdom comes. Jesus says, I tell you this day you'll be with me in paradise. In paradise. It's the difference between a hard-hearted, scoffing, mocking criminal on one side and one who's broken on the other side and calls out for help and repentance. Friends, Jesus came to die. Why, though? Now, let me just conclude this morning by giving you, and each one of these is a sermon series in and of itself. I'm just going to clip them off here. But uh, Jesus came to die, first of all, to please his Father. To please his Father. That's Ephesians 5, 2. Uh, these would make a, a good week's worth of quiet times if you're looking for some verses this week. Five reasons Jesus came to die, among a plethora of others. Jesus came to die to please his Father, to please his Father. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus came to die that he might please his Father. Secondly, Jesus came to die that he might demonstrate God's love for us. He might demonstrate God's love for us. Romans 5, 8, while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Third, Christ came to die that he might cancel the demands of the law against us. That he might cancel all the demands of the law against us by fulfilling them for us. That's Colossians 2.13. Colossians 2.13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Hallelujah. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Fourth, Jesus came to die so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. 1 Peter 2, 24. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. 
And then lastly this morning, Jesus came to die so that we too one day could be resurrected to new life. So that we too one day could be resurrected to new life. Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Jesus came to die with great purpose and he accomplished it without derivation to the right or the left. He accomplished it perfectly. And it can be yours by repentance and faith. The innocent for the guilty. He takes all our sin and pays for it on Calvary's cross there and we get all his righteousness credited to our otherwise bankrupt account. Believe and repent. Faith and repentance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, How glorious is your word. And we do, just as we began this morning, we stand amazed in the presence of a Savior who would be crushed for us. Jesus, the Nazarene. And God, we do wonder uh, how it could be uh, that he would exchange all he had uh, for all we have for all, all that he had in glory, for all of our lack and our want. Father, we thank you for the gift of alien righteousness through Christ. And I pray that there's not a person here this morning uh, who would leave without repenting of their sins and putting their, their trust, their faith in Christ and Christ alone. And in Christ plus anything, but in Jesus and Jesus alone. Father, I pray that you would be wooing Uh, some hearts here this morning, perhaps, who do not know you in a saving way, that you might receive all the honor, all the praise, and all the glory that your great name is due. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.